The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast paced. It's like a good two minute drill. We are just boom, 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 right down the field. Opinionated. It's okay to admit the Red Sox didn't have much of a choice but to trade Mookie Betts. To the point. There's no better option for the Patriots than Camp. They have to resign him moving forward. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? It is Brady Farkas. It is the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We keep on moving here in our first week, and uh, I am so grateful and appreciative of the response thus far. It has been great people in this business. Don't say that enough. I appreciate all of you. It's been really, really rewarding to see this show build and grow, and the following is growing every single day, and the good feedback on social media. So I certainly appreciate all of you who have listened, all of you who continue to listen, and those of you who tell your friends that the show exists and is on the air. I was looking at the podcast numbers already, and it's really futile to look at that three days in, but I did. And the numbers have been really, really big, way bigger than I expected, and they continue to grow up. I mean, Monday's show was getting listened to today, and yesterday's show was getting listened to today. You can find the full show podcast every single day, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, WDEVradio.com, wherever you think it's easiest, you can find us. So today's going to be a really fun day coming up in 15 minutes. We're going to have former Tampa Bay Rays pitcher, Red Sox pitcher Dan Wheeler. He played in two World Series, 13-year Major League veteran. He's going to stop by at 545. If you want to interact with the show, you can. You can always reach out to me on Twitter at WDEV Radio Brady. That's at WDEV Radio Brady. Show is always sponsored by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of lifetime oil changes and state inspections. Preston's Kia is family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. Let's start here. We have all spent time. We've all heard and wondered how much better, if at all, would the Patriots be with Tom Brady rather than Cam Newton this year? We have wondered if the Patriots the Patriots are two and four. Would they be four and two with Tom Brady? Would they be six and zero oh with Tom Brady? What is the difference between Tom Brady and Cam Newton? And I have a serious premise now that I am wondering. The Patriots were 12-4 and four last year with Brady. But I'm wondering now, were they even that good? Stick with me here. Were the Patriots even that good last year with Brady? And I like Brady, the quarterback, and I liked Brady when he was in New England. But they were 4-5 and five down, the stretch this, down the stretch last year. Listen, listen to this. They had the number one defense in the league last year. That sounds great, but they relied on turnovers. They forced the second most turnovers in the league last year. And any gambling expert, any betting person will tell you that takeaways is a really volatile stat, and it's something that's more random, and it's predicated on some luck and some poor decision-making from another team, and it's certainly not really predictive from year to year, nevertheless even game to game in most cases. So this year, the Patriots don't force as many turnovers, and boom, here they are. The team and the defense aren't as good. The Patriots last year did a lot of really special things, things that you can't really replicate and things that you can't really plan for. They had three pick sixes. They had four blocked punts. 
Okay, things that, well, again, they're special plays. They're generally one-off plays, and teams don't usually get them. And the Patriots got droves of them last year, droves of turnovers, droves of special one-off plays, things that you can't account for, things that for the most part, again, have some randomness. I don't know that the Patriots were really all that good last year. Their record was good. But I don't know that even with Tom Brady, that they were all that good. A lot of things lined up for them. They played in an inferior division. We've heard this for 20 years. But last year, the Dolphins totally rebuilding. And by the way, the Dolphins beat them once even. They played the Jets, who were horrendous, and they beat them twice predictably. They played the AFC North last year, the whole AFC North. Cleveland, bad. Bengals, worst team in the league. They faced Pittsburgh, who just went 8-8, eight and eight, and they placed, played them in week one, so they had an entire offseason to prepare for Pittsburgh. And then the one really good team in the AFC North, Baltimore, they got mm, lukewarmly, I would say, embarrassed by on Sunday Night Football. They played the NFC East, the worst division in football. Okay, The only team over 500 in that division was Philadelphia. They, so they played Washington, awful, three wins. Giants, awful, four wins. Dallas, disappointing, eight wins. They played them at home. And they played Philly. So they played in a bad division. They played in a really mediocre crossover division with the NFC, with the AFC North. They played in a downright bad division crossover with the NFC East. And they did a lot of special one-off things that, of course, are not carrying over to this year because teams just don't do them. Teams don't block four punts in a season. It had been at least five years since a team had blocked four punts in a season. Okay, I don't know that the Patriots were all that good last year. I know for a fact that if Tom Brady were playing this year for the Patriots, they would not turn the ball over as much. It's been really, really bad what the Patriots are doing offensively. They have 11 interceptions this season. Tom Brady has had multiple, several seasons without 11 interceptions. He would not have turned the ball over that much. That I can guarantee you. That would have been better. But just saying that, oh, they were, had a great record in 2019 with Brady, and it would have been a great record in 2020 with Brady, I, I don't think so. With the, the, I mean, this talent level is not very good in New England right now. And we saw it down the stretch. Four and five they were. When those special plays dried up even last year, they couldn't win more than 50% of their games. When they had to play good teams last year, Houston, Baltimore, Kansas City, they lost to them. And then Tennessee in the playoffs, they lost to them. So when they were able to do special things early in the season, they were able to win. When they were able to feast on an inferior schedule, they were able to win. They had a great record last year. I don't know that they were all that good of a team And I don't think they would have been a whole heck of a lot better if Brady had been here. So for all the conjecture about what Bill Belichick did wrong in the Brady negotiations, and and, and the Patriots handled this wrong with Brady. Brady might have lucked out, actually, because I think what we're looking at now is a lot of what we would have seen with Brady. Less turnovers on offense, but when you're not able to do special things on defense, that's not going to, you know, last year was able to cover up for things. This year, with the talent level they have and the the schedule they have is 
brutal, by the way. They've already seen Kansas City. They've already they, they've got to see Baltimore still. Houston isn't very good right now record-wise, but they're a heck of a lot better than someone like the Jets, who's in the Patriots division. And they got to see the Rams, who are exciting on offense. they got to see the Chargers, who are really good with Justin Herbert. The Patriots have a chance to lose a lot of games from here on out if things continue to go down the path that they're going on. And even if Brady was here, I don't know that it would have made that much difference. It is the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Again, if you want to interact with the show, you can at WDEV Radio Brady. That's how you get in touch with me. I've got the feed right in front of me, so uh, you can fire them off a mile a minute and appreciate, appreciate those of you that do. Every single Thursday at this time, after I give my opening thought, I'm gonna we're going to play what I call Tell the Truth Thursday. Tell the Truth Thursday. And to start off Tell the Truth Thursday, have uh, my friend Lucy from the Peanuts. Now we're really going to get down to business. Lucy from the Peanuts. Here we go. Tell the Truth Thursday number one. We will never see the good Julian Edelman again. And it pains me to say that, but we will never see good Julian Edelman again. It is over for him. I'm not saying his career is over. But the good Julian Edelman, it is done. It, it is gone. He was absent from practice today, going to miss some time. He had a knee procedure, a surgical procedure on Monday. That came down today. It was breaking news. We don't know how long he's going to miss. They say it's not the whole season, but he's 34 years old. He's taken a huge beating over the course of his career. He's played at least a full season's worth more of games just because of Patriot playoff runs on their own. And now, 34 years old, with not a great team around him, his snap counts are going down as it is. The the hit that he the hits that he has taken, it, it's over for him as being hyper productive Julian Edelman. He might retire at the end of the year. They might cut him. He might ask for a trade to a team that's more competitive. Heck, he might go hook up with Tom Brady and be part of something in Tampa. But his day of getting 100 catches and being the focal point of a good offense, those days are done. If Edelman continues to play, and I'm not telling him to retire, if he continues to play next year, whether it's in New England or elsewhere, he will never be the guy again. You will never look at it and say, oh, it's third and seven. Let's throw to Edelman. He'll get eight. Oh, it's third and four. There's Jules. He got five. You will never say that again as an expectation. It will be a When you see it happen, it will be a bit of nostalgia. It will be a throwback. You will smile fondly and you will say, I remember when he used to do that all the time. I remember when Brady to Edelman was one of the best connections in NFL history. It never got the respect that it deserved. It never had the huge billing of Manning to Harrison or Montana to Rice or Young to Rice. But for a bunch of years... Brady to Edelman and Brady to Gronk were two of the most feared quarterback pass catcher combos in the league. You will not see that again. And it's sad it's sad to see a great career come to an end, if even metaphorically. Julian Edelman might continue playing, but he will never be that guy again. And by the way, this feels like a death sentence 
for the team this season. Even though I think they can win this week against Buffalo, and they can, this really drains my optimism depending on how long he's out. If he's out four weeks, a month, and I'm just speculating, but if you're talking about a a surgical knee... uh, surgical knee procedure for a wide receiver doesn't sound like he's going to just be back next week and all's fine with the schedule they have and the lack of punch on offense that they have they can ill afford to be without their toughest player and sadly their most dynamic receiver a 34 year old they can win this week even without Edelman but they can't win long term against the teams they have coming up if he's not there providing stability reliability dependability, and availability. They can't win if he's not doing those things. Moving on here. The only good thing, by the way, there's nothing good about Edelman getting hurt. The only good thing about this happening now is that he won't get traded. The trade deadline is going to pass, and he won't get traded. I see no way in which he's going to get traded. Let me move on to uh, number two here on Tell the Truth Tuesday. I don't care if the Red Sox bring back Alex Cora as their manager. Now Alex Cora can officially sign. The World Series is over. A lot of people want Cora to be back in Boston, and I don't care if they do. And it pains me that I think that. I'm usually a stickler for the rules. I want nothing to do with cheaters or people who associate with cheaters. I don't usually like that stuff. But 2020 has been so draining for everybody in every way, and it feels like 2021 is going to be a drain also in a lot of ways. I just don't have the time or energy to worry about Alex Cora at the moment. I don't. I want the Red Sox to be watchable in 2021. And Cora will help get the best out of some guys that need to be good. Rafael Devers. Hopefully Andrew Benatendi. Devers was an MVP candidate in 2019 and then regressed this year without Cora. I hope if, if he's back, then maybe Devers becomes the MVP again and I got something really good to watch for six months. I mean, and really, I still blame the front office in Houston for the whole sign-stealing scandal. They knew about it. They okayed it. Even if Cora was a big part of it, even if he started it for all I care, I hold A.J. Hinch, upper management, even more responsible because they knew about it, endorsed it, perfected it, and they didn't stop it. So that's Tell the Truth Thursday. We'll do that every single week after my big uh, opening segment. So it's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Sticking with baseball. Analytics. How important are they? The decision to take Blake Snell out. What did we think of it? Former Rays pitcher Dan Wheeler. He played for the Red Sox, too. He was watching. What did he make of it all? He's going to join us next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Just transitioned off football, finished that segment up, talking a little baseball. Now I want to continue on with a guy 13 years in the major leagues, played in two World Series, one with the Rays, one with the Astros. He played for both those teams, also spent a year with the Red Sox. It is Dan Wheeler. Dan, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I appreciate you joining me. Let me start with this. You played in two World Series in your career, one with the Rays, one with one with Houston. Describe to me the emotions of playing in the World Series. It's, I mean, it's hard to describe because, I mean, everything that, you know, is going through your mind and you're just, you're so excited uh, just to be in the situation. But at the same time, you have to, you know, make sure that you can control your emotions and everything that goes with that to, to go out there and perform. Um, you know, you work so hard throughout the year. You know, not just that year, but your career. You know, to finally get to a to to a World Series. I mean, not not everyone gets to experience that. So for me, I felt very lucky and blessed that you know I was on I was on a couple teams that actually got to compete at that level. Uh, so, but just you know, taking the ball and you know going out there and pitching in the World Series, knowing that you're one of two teams left and things go your way, you know, get a couple bounces, you could be World Champions. And fortunately, that that didn't work out for me. But that doesn't mean that. I didn't enjoy and cherish every experience I had playing in those in those games. You're most identified as a member of the Rays organization. So as you watched the Rays the other night, what did you think of the decision to take Blake Snell out? <laughs> um, you know what? It's it's something that. Uh, you know, when you watch the Rays this year, it's it's one of those things that that's what they that's how they that's how they do it. So I mean, that's that's the formula that they they put out there, and you know, it got them to that point. Um, now that being said, I mean, listen, I mean, um, you know, I, I I see both sides of it, and I get it. Um, you know, if 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 Anderson goes out there and does the job, we're not talking about this. You know, but. You know, you're watching the way Blake Snell was throwing. You know, it's hard to argue with, you know, how good he looked. I mean, what, did he have nine or ten strikeouts? Yeah, what was it? You know, a couple hits? Yeah, so uh, looked looks really good. So, I mean... It's, it's it's easy for you and I to sit here and talk about oh we should have done this you know but in the in the heat of the moment you know when you know they have all this data and everything um, it's 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 easy to to kind of second guess because things didn't work out but um, you know I just I, I you know I don't know I mean it's 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 a tough decision you know when they you know like I said they get to that point you know with what they've done all year um, you know it's it's tough to argue with that so. Uh, but I really liked the way um, Snell was throwing. So that being said, I mean, it's, it's not an easy decision. Analytically inclined, very smart. That's who the Rays have been for a while now. Did you have that in Tampa when you were there? Had that started yet? Uh, I don't know if it really started. I mean, we started, um, you know, maybe maybe a tiny bit. I, I, I don't know, I, to be honest with you, because, I mean, maybe they did, but I didn't know about it because yeah. – I don't, I don't, I don't look into that stuff. You know, that wasn't stuff that I never, that never concerned me. I mean, I always, you know, when we go over scouting reports and stuff like that, I would always kind of think of different things. I'd like, okay, is this guy a first pitch swinger? This, this, and that. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I kind of fed off what I've done against them in the past. It may or may not work, but um, you know, when I was out there facing whoever it may be. It came down to I had, you know, Mike Stanton. I was lucky enough to be in a bullpen with, you know, Mike Stanton, Dave Weathers, John Franco, you know, when I was with the New York Mets in 03, 04. Uh, so I, I remember Mike Stanton told me one time, he's like, yeah, the scatter report's a guideline, but at the end of the day, you have to go out there and make pitches. And you have to go out there and make the pitch that you believe you can get that guy out with, you know, and throw that pitch with conviction. And if you do, you know, it's not going to always work out, but I, you know, that was the that was the, the mentality that I took and, and it worked out. I mean, I feel like 
I'm going to out execute you. And I feel like that was something that was ingrained in me. And that's kind of how I, how I, how I pitched and attacked the game. Dan Wheeler, former major league pitcher with us here on the Brady Farkas show, WDEV AM and FM, WDEV radio.com 13 years in the majors. Are you surprised, and I'm pleasantly happy and surprised, of course, are you surprised they got through the whole season under these trying circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I know there was uh, some bumps and bumps along the way. I mean, I think what were the Marlins and the, and the Cardinals? I mean, they were like, what, seven to ten games behind some of the other teams. But, uh, yeah, I think um, I, I, I felt, I mean, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad, obviously, everything was able to finish and they were able to have the World Series. I think it was very important for, for the country and everything to, 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 to watch that. And I mean, it was a, it, I thought it was a great postseason. Um, but I was, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm pleasantly surprised, surprised that, 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 that it all worked out um, with everything considering, you know, that we've all, we've all gone through. What would you have thought about the Justin Turner situation? So he tests positive, then he has to remove from the game, then – they say, MLB says, that he emphatically defied orders to stay in quarantine. He came back out on the field as as a teammate of his. How would you have felt about that situation? I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, he was already around everybody, right? Right. So, so to me, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not, I'm not looking too far into that. I mean, if it was some, I'm not overlooking the virus by any means, but if this was, this was something that it was, I mean, how did he get it? I know. COVID. I thought I thought they were in the bubble. I mean, that's kind of it's. That's another question. I'm more I'm more interested in that question than anything else. But I feel like him being around everybody, you know, already it was either it already happened if it did. So if he wants to take a couple pictures with his team and and the team is okay with it, then I'm fine with that. I want to transition now to the Red Sox portion of your career. You get there in 2011. You guys had a good team, won 90 games. What was your overall experience in Boston like? And you were a New England kid growing up. Awesome. I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, you grow up as a kid. You know, everyone's like, I want to, you know, play Major League Baseball or NFL or NBA, whatever whatever your whatever your passion is. Um, Major League Baseball is obviously mine. I was very blessed to do that. And I never cared about what team, you know, when you're growing up, I just want to play. Give me a uniform. I'm ready to go. But for me, growing up in New England, to actually put the Red Sox uniform on, I can't even put into words. I mean, the electricity that Fenway throws out every single night at you. I mean, there's just there's just nothing like it, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be a little bit biased growing up in the area. But at the same time, you know, when things are normal and when Fan, you got thirty-five thousand people there. There's, there's just nothing like that. I mean, when you got, you know, Sweet Caroline and Eighth Inning. I mean, it's just there's every every part about it, the field, the history. There's, there's no place like it. I mean, so for me to be able to put that uniform on and pitch in front of my hometown, you know, that was that meant everything to me. And that was a really interesting team because that's the team that went out and got Carl Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez and was spending a bunch of big money. What's it like going into a season when you? know that you're joining a team that spent big money and there's real big expectations there it's what you want it's like there's nothing that i mean that's you know you you play the game to win and you know when you have when you have a team like that you expect to win and you know obviously things can go our way towards the end of the year but you know that's that's something that you want you want to be you want the ball when the game's on the line and you know what there's enough we put enough pressure on ourselves already so i don't even think about 
when when you're playing you don't even think about the pressure you're like okay i just gotta go out there and do my job you know i do my job and then so and so does his job and so and so does his job then you know i mean we put this together i mean good things can happen i that's you know i never thought about you know like oh my god we have to do this or we have to win because you know there's putting so much money like no we have a great team let's go out there and do our thing and you know sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't but no i don't you know i don't i never really thought about like oh we have to do this and i don't know we no let's let's go out and do it you know just didn't work out you know you mentioned not going your way at the end of that year that team lost 18 of 24 doesn't make the playoffs terry francona let go at the end of the year theo epstein leaves did it feel like as it was unraveling did it feel like this is the end of something even though you hadn't been there but prior to did it feel like okay this is the end of something here yeah there was there was uh, you know just it was it wasn't right that last you know four weeks of the year whatever it was there's no no blame anywhere um you know it just it just didn't happen it just didn't go our way um but with with us you know losing like we did you know, it was tough to swallow, and I know it took a while, you know, for me, and I'm sure it did for a lot of the guys to kind of, you know, get over that. But I could see where you're coming from. Like, yeah, this maybe uh, after everything that's going on, you know, you need a new voice. And, you know, Tito, you know, arguably one of the best managers out there in this in today's game. I mean, I, you know, just, uh, you know, tremendous amount of respect for him. You know, I just, you know, probably got – the raw end of that deal but it's you know it's it's tough but there was um it wasn't it wasn't easy to go through that so i could see why yeah there's probably some some moves to be made and there was a lot of moves made after that year dan wheeler with us here brady farka show wdev am and fm wdev radio.com we'll get you out of here on this on, on more of just a curiosity so um I have had the yips. I had them my freshman year of college. It was the worst experience in my baseball life. We watched Jose Altuve go through it in the playoffs, and now I'm thinking football-wise, Cam Newton can't complete five-yard passes, and he appears to have some kind of mental block. I'm more curious, did you ever have a big mental block that you ever had to get over? Just in golf. Yeah, we all have <laughs> no, that one. Uh, yeah, right? Uh, no, I was lucky. You know, I never, never went through any of that. I've, I've had some friends and some teammates that have gone through that. Um, and it's never it's never an easy thing to watch, and it's something that you don't really know how to approach it. You don't know what to say to the guy, and it's just uh, it's, it's it's just tough. It's like you know because it's almost one of those things where you don't even want to address it because you don't want it to happen to you because anything can happen in this game, and you know it's kind of like when you see a guy. I, you know, when any, whenever there's a line drive back up at the, up at the, at the pitcher and it hit him in the head or somewhere, you know, I never watched it because I don't want to. I mean, you know, you know that that's out there. There's a chance for something like that, you know. But if I'm out there on the mound thinking about that kind of stuff, then you're not, you're not thinking about the right things and things bad things can happen. So, um, so I, I don't know. It's one of those things you just like. It was there in the room, but you never really, never addressed it, you know. It was just tough to talk about because, you know, it's there's no reason. You know, it's like what's going on. You know, I mean, I've done this. You know, like Chuck Knobloch. You know, make a play up the middle, and you know, bang, bang, play, make it great. But then when you have time to think, it's like, what's what's the issue? You know, it's you never know. You know, I mean, you know, it's 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 a tough it's a tough uh, 
Dan Wheeler, Major League pitcher, veteran, 13 years in the majors, mainly with Rays and Astros, but a year with the Red Sox as well, played in a couple of World Series, and has done some work with the youth program up in Plattsburgh, the Kangaroo North program up there, has done some clinics up here. So, Dan, we look forward to having you back in the area when uh, when the world allows travel easily again. So we look forward to uh, having you, and thanks for the time. Nope. There he goes, Dan Wheeler. Um little little hard to get through the end of that interview. Um, I appreciate Dan Wheeler for his time. He is great 13-year Major League veteran. Uh, breaking news of which I am not happy to report here. Um, Travis Roy has passed away. Um, if you don't know who Travis Roy is, I'm going to tell you on the other side of the break. Those of you that do know Travis Roy certainly know the impact that he's had on this community and on this state. So, again, I appreciate Dan Wheeler for his time, always gracious with me, and appreciate his local ties that he has to the Plattsburgh area as well. Travis Roy, dead tonight at the age of 45. That's breaking news within the last 20 minutes or so. If you don't know his story, I'm going to tell you it, and if you do know it, then uh, then bear with me because it deserves being told again. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. It is the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I want to thank Dan Wheeler, again, former Major League pitcher, 13-year veteran, for joining us. Uh, If you missed any of him, you can find it in the full show podcast after we also just put up this sole interview of Dan also. So uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. Usually we get to our our big takeaways from the interview, and and I will get to those if we have time, and we'll keep up the – the show on its usual flow and its usual momentum. But uh, the breaking news is not good news, and it it certainly has a local um, flair to it. Travis Roy has died today at the age of 45. If you know who Travis Roy is, you know his story. If you don't, I will tell you about it, and I apologize for those of you who do know, um, but indulge me and and let me tell those who don't. Travis Roy, 45 years old now. It was just recently, 25 years ago, that he was a college hockey player at Boston University and a very highly regarded recruit, and he became paralyzed 11 seconds into his first shift as a college hockey player at Boston University. And it took him a little while to kind of get over that, as you can only imagine that it would, as he was paralyzed um, from the waist down. And he started eventually the Travis Roy Foundation, which has been used to create funds, research, awareness for spinal cord research. And he's he's helped raise millions of dollars. I don't know what the number is in front of me, but I know it's, it's in the millions. And I want to say 19 years running, he's done a, an annual, um, an annual wiffle ball tournament at Little Fenway Park. Little Fenway Park is on the Essex-Jericho-Vermont line. Um, And there's three fields. There's a mini Fenway Park, a mini Wrigley Field, and a mini Field of Dreams, you know, a a mini Cooperstown, you know, a mini Field of Dreams Park. And teams from all over the country fundraise, and they come here, and it's a prestigious tournament. It's a lot of fun. It's been featured on ESPN, and sports writer Bob Ryan has played in it. And, you know, the – the depth of which that tournament has resonated with people, the depth of which Travis Roy's story has resonated with people, 
um, is pretty dramatic because when you see on Twitter, all I see for the most part is people reflecting on Travis Roy, Linda Cohen, longtime ESPN anchor, Steve Levy, longtime ESPN anchor, Will Reeve, whose father is Christopher Reeve, who has had his own battle um, with spinal cord injury. Um, he has been posting about this. People that I didn't know knew Travis Roy have posted pictures with Travis Roy. And I've, I've been to the tournament for two years you know this year was it was canceled to move virtual because of the the pandemic but it was in you know in person I was there for two of the last three years and they call it the best weekend of the summer and it truly is the best weekend of the summer it's a beautiful wiffle ball facility sent set in a quaint Vermont town and you really can't describe what it's like until you actually go there I mean I, I used to build a wiffle ball field in my backyard and you have a mini Wrigley Field, a mini Fenway Park that actually looks exactly like Fenway Park. It is the coolest thing in the world. And you know that the reason the tournament exists is for a horrible reason that Travis Roy, his his adult life was in a lot of ways sapped from him. But you know that he has turned, that he turned that horrible, that horrible incident, that horrible night into something that has positively affected so many people around the world and around the country. It's powerful to hear him talk. It's powerful to hear doctors speak at the tournament. It's powerful to see that people come from all over the country to play in it. I'm going to do something that I never do. Um, I don't take phone calls on this show. And the reason why is not because I don't like taking phone calls. It's because, honestly... I am the only person in the building. I don't have the ability to answer phone calls and then ask who it is and then figure it out. I have unbusied the lines. If you want to call on Travis Roy, if you met him, if you played at the tournament, you can. Um, you certainly can call in and get your uh, get your word in on Travis Roy. I mean, I see now Chris Villani, who posted, who who's worked at WEEI. He says we've already spent some time. We've all probably spent some time lamenting the sad changes life has thrown at us this year. Few people ever handled a cruel twist of fate as well as Travis Roy, who inspired so many and did so much good in all too short time he spent in this world. So that's from somebody who spent time at WEEI. So, um, forty-five years old. The 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 news says complications from a procedure that was meant to better his quality of life. And at the end of the day, it ended his life. So Travis Roy, um, dead at the age of 45. Thank you for what you brought to Vermont. He died in Vermont because his family loved Vermont. And this is where he spent a lot of his time as an adult and as a child, as I believe also, um, growing up. So thank you for the joy you brought to the area with the, with the Travis Roy wiffle ball tournament. Thank you for the work that you have done. And clearly thank you for the, connections that you uh that you made so um again if you want to get in on that you can if you want to reach me on twitter it's at wdev radio brady there is no good way to transition but uh, we will keep the the flow of the show going and if we have more to report on the travis roy story we will so we just spoke with dan wheeler 13 year major league veteran he um Played for the Red Sox, played for the Rays, played for the Astros, Mets, Indians, went to two World Series. 
he told us, this was interesting, on our talks about analytics and about the Rays and how much they're used by people. Here's what Wheeler told us about analytics, about being smart. It came down to I had, you know, Mike Stanton. I was lucky enough to be in a bullpen with, you know, Mike Stanton, Dave Weathers, John Franco, you know, when I was with the New York Mets in 0304. Uh, so I, I remember Mike Stan told me one time, he's like, yeah, the scatter report's a guideline, but at the end of the day, you have to go out there and make pitches. I love that answer. As we talk about the battle between head versus heart and the battle between analytics versus gut, I love what Wheeler says. Analytics are there. Advanced scouting is there. Detailed reports are there. But like I told you yesterday, it all has to be used in moderation. You still have to believe in what you're doing, and you still have to believe and be confident in what you are doing. I do think analytics, the thing, my biggest gripe with analytics is that they tend to take athletes away from their strengths and more to the other guy's weakness. And what I mean by that is, okay, if you know that an NFL team can't stop the run, but you are a great passing team, we'll generally see teams that will change who they are just to attack the other team's weakness. And you will ultimately sometimes take yourself out of a comfort zone because you're just trying to go with the other guy's weakness. And now you've taken away your own biggest strength. And I think of in baseball, no more perfect of an example than Sonny Gray. Sonny Gray was a really good, really good young pitcher with the A's. The Yankees traded for him, and he was no good. And then he went to the Reds, and he's ultimately been very good with Cincinnati. He wasn't good in New York because the Yankees tried to make him throw his slider a lot. The Yankees analytics people said, sliders are a great pitch. We think your slider is a great pitch. Other guys can't hit sliders that well, so we're going to make you throw more sliders. Sonny Gray couldn't throw his slider. He didn't have confidence in his slider. Well, maybe it looked like it moved a lot on paper or had proper velocity readings on paper. He didn't like his slider. He liked his curveball. He liked his changeup. He liked his sinker. He wanted to throw those things. The Yankees in their analytics turned him into something that he wasn't comfortable with, something he didn't want to be, something he had never been before, and it changed the way he pitched, and it ultimately made him very, very ineffective in his time in New York. So there is that blend. There needs to be that blend between analytics and gut feeling and confidence. You know, the gut feel or analytics can't account for things like confidence. And that's what Wheeler's saying. I'm the one who's making the pitch. I have to believe in it. I think when I was playing college baseball, I had a really good changeup. I wanted to throw my changeup a lot. My coach said, hey, we're throwing curveballs here, and you better get on board. And I couldn't throw it. And I resented it. I didn't have confidence in it. It hung up there. It got hit. It was a ball. I bounced it. And now you're behind an account, and now you're getting hit even more. That analytics can't account for somebody's confidence and that is why it needs to be used in moderation as I told you yesterday I then asked him asked Dan Wheeler about the yips okay they call it the thing if you've ever played golf and you've stood over a tee shot and you have swung and missed or you've hit it way to the right or you've hit it completely parallel to you or it's gone behind you you've popped it straight up you know what I'm talking about you do it once and then you're like uh oh now I'm going to do it all the time that is what happening. This is what's happening to me all the time now. And we saw it in baseball this year in the playoffs with Jose Altuve. Couldn't throw to first base. Couldn't throw to second base. Couldn't throw anywhere. 
for the Astros. Cam Newton's he doesn't have the yips, but he's got a little something going on in his head. Dan Wheeler talked about guys who have a mental block. You don't really know how to approach it. You don't know what to say to the guy, and it's just uh, it's, it's it's just tough. It's like you know because it's almost one of those things where you don't even want to address it because you don't want it to happen to you because anything can happen in this game. And This reminds me of Cam Newton. I know Dan played baseball and I'm talking about football, but this reminds me of Cam Newton. How do you help him through this stuff? Cam's got to get over a mental blockade here. Again, I don't think he has the yips, but when he throws you know, a 10-yard pass five yards into the ground or sails one here or won't pull the trigger, there's something in his head going on. What is that thing? I don't know how to help him. Wheeler says you almost don't even want to bring it up. It's hard to watch, and it's even harder to correct because you don't know exactly what to say. Cam Newton's an MVP. He's been to the Super Bowl. He's won a Heisman Trophy. He's won a national championship. He's been the number one pick in the draft. Who, other than, I guess, Bill Belichick, can really go to him and give advice? Cam Newton has done way more than everybody else, than most people in the league, nevertheless, everybody on the Patriots, essentially, especially offensive players. There's very few people that can go to Cam Newton and help him over this. Julian Edelman, maybe, and because of his surgical procedure, I'm not even sure he's around right now. Who's going to help Cam Newton through this? Wheeler tells you, it's hard to watch. It's even harder to correct because you don't even sometimes want to bring it up. You want to be there for a guy, but you don't want to crowd a guy and make him keep thinking about it. I don't know how you handle this. Cam Newton's got a short time to be able to figure this out. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Patriots are taking on the Bills on Sunday at 1 o'clock. Let's get to our second edition. We did our first one yesterday, second edition today of Know Your Enemy. It's time for Know Your Enemy. The the enemy, obviously, is the Bills, but interestingly enough, I think the weather is going to play a big part in this game. And when I started really doing research on this game in a deep dive yesterday, I wasn't accounting for weather. You know, I understand it could be cold a little bit, a little snow here. I wasn't ready for it to be 50-mile-an-hour winds in Buffalo. 50-mile-an-hour winds gusts possible at Orchard Park. I think that actually helps New England in a huge way because if it's truly that windy, the passing game is going to be a huge problem. Well, guess what? The passing game's already a problem for the Patriots. They already can't they can't do it when it's 85 and sunny. What what the heck does it matter if it's you know, what does it matter if it's 50, you know, 50 and windy? It doesn't matter at all. So, where it does, I think matters to Buffalo, who's seeing increased production out of their pass game. Josh Allen's fourth in the league in passing yards. Stephon Diggs, third in the NFL in catches, fourth in yards. Cole Beasley has emerged at a, you know, has emerged as a um as a really big weapon. Eleven catches last week. So or eleven catches. Uh yeah, eleven catches last week, twenty one in the last three. If Buffalo can't pass, then that's gonna be a major a major um, development in this game. Patriots run the ball pretty well. Buffalo doesn't run the ball all that well. Take If the weather's bad, Cam's got a built-in excuse, doesn't have a whole lot of pressure. He can be an athlete. They can run all of the above. I like that. I'm going to cut this short. Reason why John Butchergross, ESPN hockey analyst, sports center anchor, the, the, the founder of college hockey, 
He knows Travis Roy. He knew Travis Roy. He's going to come on quick and give us his perspective. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Brady Farka Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. It is the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We'll get to our usual segment here, a daily dose of Doug Flutie, in just a couple of minutes. But uh, the breaking news that Travis Roy has passed away at the age of 45. And joining us now is Mr. College Hockey himself, ESPN Sports Center anchor, college hockey analyst, NHL aficionado, John Butchigross. John, um, a sad day for everybody. Yeah, obviously, especially for his family. It was a tough life um, from the moment he was paralyzed. And uh, it ends, you know, today. And it was uh, always a, a bit of a tragic figure, uh, being that young kid who gets paralyzed during his first shift uh, in a college hockey game, North. And uh, from there, you know, you could see how hard it hit him. You could see how hard it hit his dad. And they could, I don't know if they ever accepted it. Um, certainly, took a long time uh, to get there. But uh, in the meantime, he raised a lot of money for a lot of people to try to make their lives easier with spinal cord injuries. And uh, I'm sure that made it a little bit easier. But still, to live every day in that chair squirming almost really for your life every day, uh, struggling to breathe and to function and to eat, uh, that's a long time. And uh, it, uh, it ends today. 25 years ago, that's when the accident happened, 11 seconds into his first shift at Boston University. We knew him well here in Vermont. He spent a lot of time in Vermont. He ultimately died in Vermont. We played in the uh, the Travis Roy Wiffle Ball Tournament. We've covered it as media people. You have been at the Travis Roy Wiffle Ball Tournament. What was your experience like there? Yeah, like a, it's just a, just a great day. Uh, you know, it was about fun and uh, young athletes, and I'm sure in many ways Travis you know, was frozen as a as a kid uh, to be able to run around and compete and to have fun and so he'd laugh with his friends and to just jump in a car and go somewhere wherever he wanted to whenever he wanted to and um, you know not make it really a, a, an arduous process which then it be obviously it always became for someone in a wheelchair so I'm sure he enjoyed that I'm sure there were times it was you know bittersweet for him he would have been loved to have been out there like all of us hyper-competitive people who love to run around and play and love our health and get upset over the smallest little ailment. Uh, you know, it's, like, like I said, it's such a, such a range of emotions thinking what he went through for more than half his life. When did you first meet Travis Roy? Chris Drury, who was obviously a teammate at BU, uh, put on a golf tournament in Connecticut down near where he grew up in Trumbull. It was in Orange, Connecticut. And uh, he put that on, and that's when I really first met. That's when I first met Travis. It was the Travis Roy Golf Tournament. Chris did that for a number of years, and those things tend to kind of run its course. And but he, he raised lots of money. I, some NHL players come back. He invited me down, and I drove down from my house in Connecticut. It was just a, a very memorable day. Um, I wrote about it on ESPN.com. It was really something that stuck with me. I had, you know, I had young boys at the time who played hockey and. Um, it's always a fear for every parent that when your kids do dangerous things, my daughter jumped with horses and, and uh, did equestrian and my boys played hockey and they couldn't be really two very dangerous sports. And so when you're watching them, it's, it's difficult and you pray and you hope that 
everything turns out fine. And, and at the time, like I said, I had a, I had a 10 year old and I had a two year old when I met Travis. And so, uh, that's where it kind of began. We kept in touch throughout the years, like to talk hockey, uh, emails and texts and DMs and helping him out whenever I can. MC'd one of his events in Boston and, uh, certainly the wiffle ball tournament you talked about and gave as much money as I could throughout the years for my Bucci overtime challenge and college hockey merchandise. So it was always a neat little connection with him. And, um, you know, I just heard from him a couple months ago when he was trying to get the, you know, obviously the virtual wiffle ball fundraiser going. And, uh, so it's, it was a, it was a shock. You know, like I said, I, I was just talking to him a couple months ago. John Butcher Gross, ESPN Sports Center anchor, college hockey aficionado and expert, and uh, a tough day. John, we appreciate your time on a, uh, a much happier note down the line. We hope that uh, someday soon we'll get some fans at UVM because I know you love Gutterson Fieldhouse. We look forward to having you back up in the area sometime soon. You bet. Vermont is awesome. Uh, thanks for including me. Appreciate it. There goes John Butcher Gross. So, again, reacting to the news of Travis Roy's death today at the age of 45. Certainly a, a tough day for everybody. Appreciate John's time on short notice and his perspective and somebody who uh, certainly knew Travis on a, on a deeper level than I did. Um, I had met him multiple times, talked with him multiple times. But, uh, John Butcher Gross, you know, when you're in – when you're in the position that John is in, being a sports center anchor and being at ESPN and you know Disney employee, you're in a position to do a lot and uh, help out a lot, and then have more access to. So um, appreciate all that John Butchergrass has done for the Travis Roy Foundation. And once again, no easy way to transition. We will keep the show moving. We will bring you more if we learn more on the Travis Roy situation. Um, again, passed away at the age of 45. It is though one of my favorite segments of the week. It is time for a daily dose of Doug Flutie. So Brady does a podcast with former Patriots quarterback Doug Flutie. Doug is a lot more famous than Brady. Flutie flushed, throws it down, caught by Boston College. I don't believe it. Doug is a lot smarter than Brady. So much in football is the guys surrounding you. Your success is dependent on the guys on the field and that team. So let's listen to Doug. It's your daily dose of Doug on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, a daily dose of Doug as we get ready for Patriots and uh, and Bills on Sunday. Again, this show's been a little tipsy-turvy. I didn't really get to finish off Know Your Enemy. Um, the weather's going to be a big issue. I really do think Patriots, they already can't pass. If Buffalo can't pass, that's going to be a big issue for them. Patriots do run the ball well. Buffalo doesn't run the ball all that well. So things are lining up for me to feel more okay about the Patriots at this point. So, um, again, the Patriots shouldn't win. They're not better than the Bills, but whether in their favor, Josh Allen's never played well against Buffalo, they do have a chance. I want to continue on here, again, with a daily dose of Doug. So Doug Flutie talked to me recently, a couple weeks ago, about going to Canada. Remember, so he played with the, played with the Bears and then played with the Patriots, and then he went to Canada in search of a starting job, and he became a legendary. He's ranked the number one CFL player of all time, and he's a CFL Hall of Famer. Then he came back to the NFL in the late 90s and played for Buffalo and then the Chargers and then ultimately the Patriots. I asked him, what did going to Canada do for you? And um, he gave me this answer. It really um, gave me peace of mind, like validate. All the things I was thinking deep down became validated. I was hmm. I was in Canada. I had a great one-loss record in my first five years in the NFL. 
even though I wasn't thrown for 300 yard games and all that, we were managing, we were running the football a lot, but managing to win games. I went up to Canada, lit it up and I'd like reaffirm the things I believed in my abilities and also reassure, you know, I, I found my confidence again. Doug Flutie says he found his confidence in going to Canada. This has me feeling worse overall about the Patriots moving forward. And the reason why is because Flutie says he went to Canada and got his confidence back, right? And that sounds great on the surface. He played in Canada for several years, like nearly a decade. We're asking Cam Newton to find his confidence again in a matter of days. Doug Flutie, who won a Heisman Trophy, had had some success in the NFL, goes to Canada and finds his and finds his confidence, and it validates his career and justifies his own opinion of himself. It took him a period of years of success to feel that way. We're asking Cam Newton to find his confidence and rediscover his magic in a period of days. I'm not saying he can't do it, but it certainly has me more discouraged moving forward. It's another reason why I think the the bad weather could be a good thing for Cam on Sunday. The team won't have to be reliant on him as a passer. He gets a chance to rely on the run game, hide a little bit, not have to do as much, make himself a runner, get himself some juice, get himself some momentum, see some successful plays there, stack on top of each other, let him do some things that are successful. That's ultimately what you want if you are Cam there, is to get something good to happen and then have it have it snowball positively for you. That's what you're looking for there. Something good. And if Cam doesn't have to throw it 40 times and he can, you know, they can be relying on the run game and he can get in the run game and then just hit a couple of passes as the as the run game becomes the dominant focal point of the offense, maybe he pops a play action. Maybe he cuts one through the wind and hits a 6-yard pass that gets taken for 25. And now it starts to go. Now it starts to go. That's what we're looking for. The bad weather, I think, is going to help them. It's cert- the human mind is a powerful thing. Okay, When you overthink, that's a problem. And I think Cam is very smart, and I think Cam is very introspective. Okay, And there's an old saying that I got told by a coach, paralysis by analysis. And I think Cam is suffering from that right now. He is analyzing everything. He's analyzing everything that he is doing from his his mechanics to the playbook to his teammates to, oh, now Edelman's out to now this guy's out to, oh, I had coronavirus to I'm battling for my career. What's the de- And then what's the defense doing? What's the other coach doing? What's the other offense doing? What am I? There's a lot of things going on. Overanalyzing, overthinking. Those are all real, real issues. And Cam is guilty of them right now. I don't know how. I don't know how he gets his confidence back in a matter of days. He's so he has been so good that you would think it wouldn't be that hard. But he's a human just like I'm a human just like you're a human. Insecurities, doubt, they all creep in. And then those thoughts, those just like they always tell you to think positively. Okay, positive thoughts breed positive results. Negative thoughts breed negative results. And I think Cam is feeling negative right now. I think he's thinking negatively. On the matchup itself, continuing on here with our daily dose of Doug, Doug Flutie, um, he doesn't feel very confident about this game at all, actually, when you look at what the Patriots are going up against. But I go back to how poor the offense has been 
and there aren't any answers right now. And I don't think they win this week. Like normally I would say, you know, it, it could be a normal situation with the Patriots where they've been struggling, but they'll, they'll turn it around in one week. It does. This does not look like they can turn this around in one week. This also makes me discouraged, obviously, because you have to be able to make adjustments. The thing, though, they need to, the thing where I disagree with Doug is the thing they need to turn around most is effort and attitude. They can't change their players. They can't just get better players. I understand that. And if they lose to Buffalo just because Buffalo has better players, well, then that's one thing, and I'll accept that. What you can accept is them laying down. And Matthew Slater, who's a captain on this team, who's been there for 10 years and had a lot of success as an all-pro and as as um, dedicated and bright a professional as you will find in the NFL, he said they laid down. He said we gave up, and that's unacceptable. What they can't the, the, the Patriots will be in this game if they just come focused, disciplined, and bring an attitude and an effort. That that alone will keep them in the game. Buffalo's good. They are not great. They got beat by the Chiefs. They got beat by Tennessee. Anytime they played anybody good, they've gotten beat. They beat the Rams on what could, you know, be generously called a fortunate call for them. Otherwise, they would have lost that game too. They haven't beaten a whole lot of good teams. They've beaten the Jets twice, I believe. So, Josh Allen will turn it over. They don't run the ball well. The Patriots will be able to run the ball. If the Patriots just come in with an attitude and an effort and a dedication better than what we saw last week, then that ultimately is going to keep them in the game. And all of this really leads to a really, really interesting trade deadline, right? It re- like Think about this. The trade deadline is Tuesday. Stephon Gilmore's got his house on the market. Adam Schefter of ESPN, he gave his thoughts on the Patriots' thoughts of the trade deadline earlier. Listen, they are so smart about these things usually, and they are advanced, and they always move on from players sooner rather than later. But let me remind you, next year they're going into a year where they're going to have basically more cap space than anybody. They have the flexibility to do anything they want next offseason in an offseason where there is expected to be a record number of free agents due to the drop in the salary cap. It's fascinating what the how the Patriots handle this, right? If I'm the Patriots, I'm only buying players that can help me for multiple years. Okay, because I don't think the Patriots are winning the Super Bowl. So I'm not giving up a draft pick for a rental player. I don't usually do that. I only would do that if I'm right on the cusp of a title. The Patriots aren't. I want to make the playoffs. I want to keep playing into January. They're not winning the Super Bowl. So I'll buy a player if he's got two, three years left. Or, yeah, two, three years. And I'll even take money on it. Because as Schefter told you, the Patriots have an immense amount of of cap space available to them next year. And the Patriots have purged some salaries. The guys who are opting out might not be back. That'll save more salary next year. The pandemic's going to lower the salary cap, so some players are going to get released. Like, good players on big contracts are going to get released. The Patriots can scoop them up. The Patriots could very easily go and grab some really good players and turn this around in a year. If they want to buy a player that will help now, but also helps them in the future when they can really go after it again starting next offseason, I would do that. If I'm selling a guy like Gilmore, I need a big return. I need a big return with good draft picks so that then I can have good draft picks that are cheap and affordable and then have even more money saved with Gilmore being gone to go and do what exactly what I just said and 
as other teams gut their rosters to save money, the Patriots are there like Pac-Man, just to gobble, 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 gobble. Okay? There will be a huge pull, a huge pool of free agents, but it's all still predicated on the quarterback. They've got to figure out the quarterback, and uh, we'll continue to monitor that all year long. Um and all offseason long, because we might be thinking about a Patriots high draft pick potentially and what the Patriots might do. So it is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Let's get to crazy Twitter takes. We do this every single day. The internet, it's a really weird place. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The, the internet. internet. It's time for crazy Twitter takes on the Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Crazy Twitter takes here on the Brady Farkas show. This one goes to McLovin, Andrew Perloff of the Dan Patrick Show, one of the producers. He says, just a reminder at the trade deadline, last time a Super Bowl winner had an all-pro wide receiver was Marvin Harrison in 06. Before that, Jerry Rice in 94. Big-time wide receivers don't translate to championships. Someone then followed up and said wide receiver was the most overrated position in all of sports. Look, I have generally agreed that you don't need a top wide receiver that takes up a huge chunk of your payroll. And I still do, right? You don't need to pay Odell Beckham, and you don't need to pay Julio Jones. However, to call wide receivers overrated or to say that you don't need good ones is also is patently false. The passing game has become more important. As running backs have become devalued, wide receivers and tight ends have seen a massive uptick in value over the last couple of years. Okay, football, when, when I thought that wide receivers weren't all that important, I thought they were plug and play, that was like as recent as 2015. Football doesn't even look the same now as it did in 2015. It's a completely different game. The passing game is now so important. You need home run threats. You need speed threats. You need guys who can take a ball to the house, go win a 50-50 ball, because the best way to move the ball down the field is by passing and passing a lot, and you need good pass catchers. We're calling on the Patriots to get, quote, weapons. We're calling on the Packers to add weapons for Aaron Rodgers. Tom Brady surrounded himself with weapons. He went where there were good weapons. Okay, If wide receivers didn't matter, we wouldn't be saying these things. We're pinning a lot of the Patriots' problems on their lack of talent and their lack of wide receivers. Oh, the wide receivers can't separate. Oh, they don't have anybody to pass to. Oh, nobody can get open. Wide receivers clearly do matter. And coaches in front offices are telling you they matter. Because now the most important position on defense is a defensive back. That's why you see the Rams go make a play for a Jalen Ramsey. That's why you might see Stephon Gilmore get traded. Teams know defensive backs matter. Why? Because the passing game is so important, and wide receivers are so prevalent, and scoring is up, and they need guys who are elite to stop elite wide receivers. I can get on board with not taking up your entire payroll with wide receivers. But you need good ones. And if I was the Patriots, and I told you, I'd I'd buy guys that have multiple years left. I'd take Amari Cooper from Dallas. I understand he makes a lot of money, but they can afford it. The Patriots need an elite wide receiver, and they'll need an elite one next year. And they can afford Amari Cooper. They can afford Adam Thielen out of Minnesota. I'd take both of those guys. I'd take either one of them. Okay? if I mean, Julian Edelman being hurt feels like a death sentence to the Patriots this year. Their offense, 
<coughs> excuse me, their offense is already horrible. If Edelman getting hurt, I mean, Edelman getting hurt feels like a huge deal. Why? Because the wide receiver position is a big deal now. So I love McLovin from from the DP show. I have no idea who that commenter is that says it's the most wide uh, most overrated position in sports. If if wide receiver didn't matter, the Patriots would be a whole heck of a lot better because we've pinned a lot of their shortcomings on the lack of wide receivers. It's the Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We come back, we get to who's saying what. That's next. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? The passing game was atrocious today. This passing game is in big-time trouble. They really said that? The Patriots, they're an average offense. If you cannot be explosive on offense, you cannot hang in the NFL. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. It is Who's Saying What right here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. On my closing thoughts, I'm going to uh, continue to reflect on Travis Roy as we get a little bit more um, on his passing, which is just tragic. If you missed any of the show, John Butchagross of ESPN joined us, um, hockey analyst, sports center anchor, and uh, we appreciated his time on short notice. So we'll have that interview available online at WDEVradio.com as well um, on the Brady Farkas podcast page on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. As for who's saying what, Tim Kirchin, ESPN MLB analyst, he wants old the old baseball back. And I'm hoping that maybe, since this was such a controversial move, that this will be the start of going back towards the old school way of playing. I'm not saying we need to go all the way back there, but we have to get a little bit closer because we're way too far on the mathematical side now. Okay. I've thought a lot about this, and it's really interesting. It feels weird to say this, though, but in a weird way, pitching has become too good in some respects. And it's because to me, it's not even so much baseball's problem being the analytics or the mathematical side. Pitching being too good in a lot of ways has taken away action negatively. Stick with me on this because it does, it feels weird. How athletes being better should be a good thing. The pitching has gotten so good, it has hurt the sport in some ways. A lot of pitchers throw 95 to 100 miles an hour now. Okay, Hitters have recognized that they can't string together three to four hits at a time anymore. Okay, For the most part, it happens occasionally, but for the most part, you know, you're not getting 12 hits in a game. You're not stringing together four hits in the first and four hits in the second and four hits in the sixth and stringing together a bunch of runs that way. So hitters have decided that their best chance to score is just to hit home runs. We can't get four hits in one inning. But we can maybe get a single, a walk, and boom, a three-run homer. Maybe a walk in air, and boom, a three-run homer. Hitters have decided, look, we can't do this. The pitching is so good, we cannot do this. So our best chance to score and put up crooked numbers is to hit home runs. Also, it used to be a gift when a team got to the bullpen. Oh man, we let's get the starter out of there after six, and we'll get to the bullpen. Why the bullpen's not supposed to be as good? That's the way it used to be. The inferior pitchers were in the bullpen. If you were any good, you started. If you were any good, you started. The inferior pitchers were the bullpen. Those were the guys you wanted to get to. Now, all you're doing is bringing in relievers that throw even harder than the starters do. With the with the velocity that they have, it's no longer that. 
It's more strikeouts, which creates more lack of action and an even bigger desire to just hit home runs because you can't manufacture runs very easily anymore. Okay, And you can't bunt 101 miles an hour. As much as people want to say, how can the major leaguers not bunt? You can't really bunt 101 easily. And if you've ever tried to bunt and you've worn one off your fingers, you really don't want to break your fingers with 101 coming at you. Those relievers throw so hard. This is the one negative of pitching. The relievers throw so hard. They've always thrown hard, right? In the, to them, they have always been the best. They've always thrown hard. They've never really needed other pitches. So you do see guys that are fastball dominant that don't really have anything else. So they create, you know, they walk guys. <clears throat> and when you walk guys out of the bullpen, less action longer game time because there's less action and you hear a lot about the three true outcomes that's what you're seeing the relief the starters and relievers strike everybody out the hitters can only hit home runs off of them and the relievers and the guys that throw this hard they'll have a higher propensity to walk guys which then just feeds the hitters emotion hey give me a bloop and a blast give me a walk and a blast give me a walk and a, double walk two walks and a blast that it all feeds each other and that's disappointing. It's not so much to me that analytics has ruined baseball or that nerds have ruined baseball. I don't think that. I told you that yesterday. Lack of action is hurting baseball. The three true outcomes is hurting baseball. I can't believe I'm saying this. The pitchers being so good and being so dominant and throwing so hard, that has hurt baseball. Because if everybody threw 92 and the hitters could hit, I think you'd see, sure, you'd see home runs, but you'd see guys going for doubles. You'd see guys slashing singles. You'd see some more hit and runs. But now it feels like every chance to score, it's so hard to score that the best that you can do is just hope for something and then hit a three-run homer. And that's all that you really have. So um, very, very interesting from Tim Kirchin. He sounds a little bit like get-off-my-lawn guy there. But I don't think that math is the problem. I think pitching being so good. You know, we used to think it was good, right, when a guy would throw 100. And it was like, wow, that's really special. I've never seen that. And you didn't mind if Roger Clemens struck out 18 guys because you never saw it. Now it's like I look at the box score and I'm like, oh, 24 strikeouts in today's game. That was pretty boring. Like it's no longer even enjoyable to see a guy throw 100. All right, let's get to closing thoughts here. Closing thoughts. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. All right, more on the passing of Travis Roy. So this comes from Mike Lynch, who works for a Maine NBC affiliate. Maine is where Travis Roy was born, although he spent a lot of time in Vermont. He says the late Travis Roy was recently diagnosed with bladder cancer. He had been in and out of Dana-Farber recently, which is in Boston. Just over a week ago, he told a close friend he was headed to his house in Vermont so he wouldn't be a burden to his family. Um, Travis Roy did unbelievable things in his life. Travis Roy is a far better person, a far better man than I, because when you become paralyzed at 20 years old, and you live in that world every day for the next 25 years where you are nearly completely dependent on other people and where you are nearly um, 
where you are trapped inside your own body and where you can't do some of the most basic human functions for yourself. I could not do it. I could not do it. I could see myself being bitter, being resentful, being angry at the lack of independence, being embarrassed. And and Travis told me once that he was some of those things and it took a long time for him to come to the realization, but he always hoped that there was going to be a day where he walked again. And that, that was his motivation to help himself and to help other people in the position like him by tomorrow, by the time I get off the air, I will have the the full number, the full scope of what monetarily the Travis Roy foundation has, has done for people, but it's, it's in the millions. The last time, you know, two years ago when they last had the in-person tournament, I think we were pushing nearly $600,000 in donations and NHL players wanted to be a part of this. And, um, you know, Charlie McAvoy, I met there of the Bruins and Jack Eichel of the Sabres, John Butchagross of ESPN, Will Reeve of ESPN. These A-listers of media and sports wanted to be around the cause and wanted to be around Travis Roy because it was special. You knew that when you were at the Travis Roy Wiffle Ball Tournament that it was – I met Bob Ryan there um, just two years ago. You knew when you were there, you knew that it was special, and you knew the work that was being done was special. And you can't – you know – you can't put into words how much respect you have for Travis that he was able to quote overcome this situation and rise above it because I I know that I wouldn't have. And I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't have either. And I'm amazed that he did it. I'm amazed at his family that they were able to handle it. The money that was raised, the lives that were helped, the opportunities that were given. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. And here in Vermont, we were fortunate enough to play a small part in it and to be the 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 physical home of the wiffle ball tournament and to see the people that came to the area that wanted to help and wanted to have the fun and wanted to be a part of it. And um, the O'Connor family who maintained the little Fenway property for so many years and owned it before selling it to the foundation itself, an amazing group of people involved. Um, Travis Roy, an amazing life. Thank you for your contributions. Thank you for your contributions to the area, your love of Vermont. It will certainly not be forgotten. Uh, Full show podcast will be available on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify as well as WDEVradio.com. We will be back tomorrow getting you ready for Patriots and Bills. We'll see everybody. It's WDEV AM and FM.